Hi, my name is Andrew. I am a junior Arabic major at Middlebury College. Hi, I'm Lucy. I'm a junior international politics and economics major at Middlebury College, and I've taken a first year seminar with our guest professor, Professor Robert Greeley. And I have taken Arabic from him throughout my career here at Middlebury. Um, so without further ado, I would love to introduce you. Um, professor Greeley is an assistant professor in the Arabic department at Middlebury College. He received his PhD in geography from the University of South Carolina, Columbia. His recent research focuses on environmental governance and protected areas. Among the courses he teaches here are the Environmental Middle East, which looks at nature and society questions in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. He also teaches the Levant, which looks at literary and cultural production of Syria and Lebanon. Professor Greeley is affiliated with Environmental Studies at Middlebury, where he teaches Human Environment, the Middle East, which addresses nature society questions in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. In 2020, Professor Greeley published a paper entitled Conservation, Territorialization, and Sport Hunting in Lebanon's Shouf Biosphere Reserve. This article problematizes the narrative that states expand their control through classifying lands adjacent to a protected area under different conservation categories. Through many periods of fieldwork and interviews done in language, Professor Greeley found that the Lebanese state could not territorialize and control such areas next to the Shouf Biosphere Reserve. Professor Greeley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is an honor. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. So to start off, can you describe your current relationship with Lebanon? So when did you first visit and how often do you visit Lebanon? Um, thank you. So my first visit to Lebanon was in 2003. Um, and I went to Lebanon. I was on a Fulbright in Jordan. And I went to, I, I did a quick trip through Lebanon. That was my first exposure to Lebanon. Um, and I've been going on and off since then. Um, first, to answer the question of my current relationship with Lebanon is, I, go to, I try to go to Lebanon every year, if possible, if not more. Um, I usually go in the summer because that's when I'm available. Um, and I guess I would just say this. I, I love Lebanon. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a great place. Um, it's a really fun place to be. Um, so my relation, my current relationship, as, is, as it always has been, is I really love it. Um, I started, years ago, I really started thinking about research in Lebanon as, as researchers of the Middle East know, there's, there's often, right, people think about a backup subject when they want to study something. The problem with the Middle East oftentimes is you, sadly, often need a backup country. So I, I went to, I went to, I was in Jordan when I first went to Lebanon on sort of a trip and I went very quickly before, and this was 2003, you know, it happened in 2003, 
was the uh, American-led invasion in Iraq. And so the research I was doing in Jordan got cut short. Um, and then I finished my master's at UC Berkeley in Arabic literature. And I sort of realized I didn't want that as much as I loved literature, that I didn't love the study of literature. And while, yes, it says on my page that I teach that course on the Levant, I actually haven't taught that one for a while. I should probably update it. Um, because <laughs> because I, I mostly uh, I do geography, environmental-based things now, purely. Um, and then years later, I went to Syria to try to study um, water. I wanted to study water in Syria. And that did not pan out um, for a number of reasons. Um, and so I actually went to Lebanon. I mean, basically it didn't pan out because the, the Syrian state was not happy with the possibility that I was going to do research. I went there with CASA. Center for Arabic Study Abroad. And it was a very awesome and excellent, powerful learning experience. And living in Syria for a year was really, I just, I mean, I love Syria. I was really happy there. It was a great place. Um, that said, then when I was working at the, when I was studying and working, doing CASA Center for Arabic Study Abroad at the University of Damascus, the administrators did not want me doing any research. Um, and so there was a lot of back and forth and I was not allowed to do research. Um, so that was too bad. So I, I didn't want to cause costs or anything, anybody any trouble. Um, and I continued on purely under the guise of, and the real guise of a language student. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really do research. Um, I wasn't going to, you know, try to do it on the down and low. So I started looking around for other places to do research and I started going to Lebanon. And then I went into Lebanon and I, I was like, what do I want to do? Um, and I went to the mountains. I went in the mountains and I went to this thing called the Shuf Biosphere Reserve and I was like, I love this, this is great. Snow, trees, more snow, it was winter, um, or like early, early, early spring. And there was tons, it was just, I was like, this is where I wanna do research. And so I started kind of working that, um, trying to get back there. Um, and then eventually that was, sort of slowly, when I, I went back, I went to grad school in the University of South Carolina. I taught at Emory for a while. And then I went to grad, grad school at the University of South Carolina. And then got barely any money to live in a terrible apartment in Beirut and tried to build connections to people in the Shoe Biosphere Reserve. And eventually sort of worked my way there, got to know people, and, and, uh, and yeah, that in it, on its own is a very funny story, because I was used to, yeah, it was just, it was a great outfit, they were, they were like, yes, welcome, great, what do you need? Um, 
they're just a really well put together organization. So and they once I got to meet them and know them, they were like, Come on. Um so my relationship basically is just um that of a researcher who does grounded research, who always goes there and does research, um, interviews, meets people, hangs out with people, interviews people. I do everything, obviously, in Arabic. Um, but I also... I guess it's a funky question, and I love it, because, like, what is your relationship to this country... You're right, because there's so much research that is abstracted in, right, in many ways. While I understand that data has value, what we've come to understand to be data has become so limited to numeracy or enumerated thing to what we can just simply, okay, this is these are the numbers and therefore we know this truth. And so I think my relationship also to Lebanon is a relationship of having lived and been in the country and the region for years. And so I'm, I, I find myself really wanting the best for Lebanon would be my answer. And I think to answer it would be to say it's a place where I am not Lebanese, but it is a place where I feel at home. Even though it is a place where I go and I do abstract research and I come back and I record things and then I put this out as a sort of produced article and what I'm doing is also then um, as we know and is what the academy does in many ways is extractive and so for me I find myself often thinking okay could what I do help this serve this place or help is a terrible word um, serve this place in some sort of manner um, and so my relationship to it is, is always that, right? Is always that, as opposed to an object of study. Um, there's an excellent theologian I really love. Um, his name is Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan friar. Um, and I think St. Francis is brilliant, Because right? he's, he's not just like, the system seems a little broken. He's more like, forget the system. The whole system is junk. Right? We're just going to just... Um, we're going to just live in sheds. Because the whole system is garbage. Um, and I think part of me loves him because I, I think... I, 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 everyone wants to think of themselves as making a difference in the world and being better and doing good. There's also part of me that thinks the world is, is just sort of fundamentally broken in, its, in the way it distributes wealth, in the way it distributes 
opportunity and the way it just distributes food. <laughs> right? I mean, just nobody should go without food. And adequate shelter. Um, and even in this sort of Franciscan way, it's almost like my friends is like, well, I'm just going to sleep in a shed. And I even think housing itself is, right, the, the lack of housing for the homeless is a form of violence. And I think also housing is a form of violence in that it keeps people entrenched in a sort of capitalist consumer system. And so where all this is really going is, what am I doing in this world? Why do I sit around? Why do I study anything? Like, why do I get on a plane and fly to this other country, consume all these gases, and, and then just come back and write this stuff? Like, what are we all really doing here? What's the point? Um, and so I take Richard Rohr, where all this came from, it, and he has this lovely thing where we try to approach the world not, not through getting data, but instead as approaching the world as a subject, not as a subject to an object, but as a, object, as a subject to a subject. Right? That, that, that this is a conversation, that this is mutual, that this speaks on its own terms. And then even in the sort of Franciscan way where Francis taught, right, that Francis is honoring the Holy Spirit by looking at the ground, not looking at the sky, that everything is sort of imbibed and sort of part of this sort of unity. And so while I while I think of this, I really start to think like the careerism and the goals of what the academy and business and money are in this world they all they, they we've become tied down to thinking of research as producing data and i have a real problem with that and that we should be thinking about not places where we can make careers but places with which we have relationships and i love your question because it really set it it caught me off guard um because it's very easy to go and think about extracted data and just create careers out of this and this is a problem i mean you have right large refugee populations in beirut um Right, Sabrah uh, Shatil, a large, right, sort of Palestinian camps that have been there forever, and you have all sorts of people. They're they're tired of researchers. They're tired of researchers who are like, yeah, hi, we did all this research, and I did all this, and now, but things haven't changed here um, for the people there. And I, I, my fear in saying all this is some sort of moral posturing of like, I'm going to make the world better or I'm going to change and I'm going to fix things. It's more so me trying 
to understand that I'm part of the world and that when I go there, I am, I'm, I'm living in relationship with a place and people and something. And that my presence there is real and has consequences and results for those with whom I come into contact. And that I don't want that to be extractive. And so, so in this way, I, I, um, I, uh, my relationship and my approach always feels hesitant and tentative and uncertain. And I think that there's no, there's no reason for me to be doing what I'm doing. And yet, I'm doing it because I'm also part of this world. And so that's kind of what I always want to tell my students is, yeah, the college loves and people love and the, the academy loves this world of like global citizen. Well, citizenry is not given to all individuals. There are a lot of people who are stateless. And so global citizenry seems like something really like, wow, who gets that privilege? And so for me, when I do these, when I think about research and I take students to Lebanon or I meet students in Lebanon, I try to think about what, is it, what does it just mean to be a, a human body here with other people? And not in some sort of pretentious, I'm so modest way, but in some, in a more material way, like what are we all doing with our limited time on this earth? And if we're not doing something that's meaningful to ourselves and other people, possibly materially or existentially, then where are we putting our energy? Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for that answer. Sure. I guess I could have answered it in like two seconds <laughs> and been like, yeah, hi. Yeah, no, it's a good one. I'm very happy to go there. But <laughs> but I also think coming out of the end of the pandemic, we're starting to understand like, I, that what do we want to do with our lives, right? Mm-hmm. There's all this sort of talk about what are the takeaways from the pandemic? Like, every corporation says this, The right? campus has written at least three articles about it. So oh, really? I, <laughs> I would assume so. So my, my, honestly, my feeling is, like, what's the takeaway has largely been death, right? For most mm-hmm. people, it's been death. <laughs> and so I... I and, then, and then it becomes, okay... It's also an, a moment for an existential hiccup for those of us who got to live. Mm-hmm. Okay, whoa, wow. What am I doing with my time? Yeah, I think for me the pandemic has definitely complicated my relationship with what I do, not each day and every moment because it has, but also in my life in general too and kind of thinking about the idea that nothing is set and nothing is absolute and something that's really has sort of impacted a lot of people. Um, and so I really appreciate that answer. 
Thank you. Thank you for the question. Yeah. I didn't expect to <laughs> say all that, but it... It came out anyway. It came out anyway. <laughs> yeah. So my next, fo- my next question does focus more narrowly on your paper. Yeah. And please. on your research. Um, so in your paper, you describe how when you're around 200 yards away from the Shoof Biosphere Reserve, you had a pretty close encounter with a hunter. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of sparked your interest in differing levels of state control on hunting around the SBR. Um, and so you control an environment are also a focus of many of the classes you taught at Middlebury, including the one the that la- I took. The mask. I couldn't hear oh, that second. Oh, you're fine. The um, very last part you said there, sorry. So state control and the environment yep. are a focus of many of the classes. Yes. That you teach at Middlebury. Yes. Including the first year seminar that I took with you. Definitely. In the fall of 2018. That was fun. It was, definitely. Um, but can you elaborate just a little bit more on why you're so interested in the interaction between state ap- apparatus and the environment and control? Excellent. Um, I, mean, the, I, I think the phenomenon of the state is bizarre. Um, right? Like, the, it, it is... It is modernism kind of gone ultra-violent. I mean, you have an entity that has a complete monopoly on violence. Um, And we think of it often as the solution to many things and and we think of it as this kind of an advancement and a way to sort of resolve issues and then we have some international forums and the UN and these multilateral institutions which are purportedly representative of the desires of states and states then are purportedly representative on in some capacity if they're supposedly democracy then are representative of the will of their people um and yet in some ways they're really just sort of violent corporations um and or representative of entrenched moneyed interests and so i find myself thinking Okay, so, and this within my field, within geography, really grew out of, is taken up in a critique of protected areas as areas that are connected to state power and um, sort of multilateral conservation projects that marginalize local peoples and control resources through sort of international environmental agendas. And so this sort of dubbed what we call uh, fortress conservation. Mm-hmm. And the critique, this fortress conservation critique is, is very robust, right? It, it has tons of data right? that's been very ground truth. Um, and I have no sort of contention that its tenets are incorrect, right? It's very well backed up. 
However, it's also what I'm trying to do here is is like all things. It, 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 it once uh, when a critique has been launched, it then finds more robust findings, and I am trying in this to, and part of those robust findings are the sort of coherence or interlapping between the state, local state, local actors, and international finance and money that then controls and territorializes these areas and then controls local populations. And so, yes, this is definitely true, but in this sort of robust and needed redundant findings for this, I also wanted to say, okay, this is great, but what else are we also finding, right? What are we finding when we go and think about things like about a state's ability to actually territorialize these spaces? And in particular, there are, there are a number of, there's literature, and when you look at the article, there's a, there's a sort of some consensus in the literature that these protected areas then sort of serve as sites from which the uh, state and uh, protected area then is able to expand territorialization. And there were some ways in which I saw this in Lebanon. And there was part of me that wanted to just do the easy thing and be like, well, yeah, cool, look, I found these redundant findings. Um, and so look, here's the Lebanese state and here's some local actors, and here's some of this. And so look, yeah, okay, again, we have fortress conservation. Um, and I don't want to say what I'm going to say to sound like my research is seminal and look at me. Um, but in this way, like what I was, what I'm trying to do in this article is... I was trying to push back and find something new and something different. And so when I saw this, when I had to sort of duck under the, away from a person shooting a gun that close to the park headquarters, knowing that they, there was sort of nothing they could do about it and nothing that the state was going to be able to do about it, it really grabbed my attention even though I had sort of data for the other thing, I, I, and I'll say this with some immodesty, there was this like, well, wait a minute. It would be really easy to just put light on the data that everyone else has done and be like, yeah, look, yeah, yeah, see, forest conservation. And there was part, there was really part of me that was like, wait a minute, there is something clearly pushing against this. They can't ter territorialize this area. The state can't control this. And the reserve itself can't control this. And this is what is going on here. Like, this is really novel. 
And, and so that's why I wrote about that. And that's why I wrote about that moment. Because that's that moment that really grabbed me. Like, why? Why is this? And, and, and yeah. And so that's, that's how that, that's why I wrote about that. Um, I regret it in some ways because it's, um, because it, it, it doesn't go with the consensus. And as much as I would like to say, oh, look at me. I'm wonderful, I am willing to push against the grain and write seminal, new, groundbreaking research. (laughs) Like, don't get me wrong here. What I'm doing is not seminal, groundbreaking, world-changing research. What I'm doing is taking a standing, literary, and robustly found tradition and saying, well, there's also, and I'm trying to problematize it more than I think it really has been problematized. Um, And so... I've gotten pushback in that, in having tried to do that. And there's this sort of part of me that knows that, like anything, okay, if you toe the line and you say what everybody's saying, even then you're probably going to be, it's right, people love echo chambers. Um, but I, I wanted to write it and in some way it was really sort of like, am I interested in the truth or am I interested in publishability? Um, and I will not deny a desire to publish, right? This is how, this is as the, as the president of the American Association of Geographers says, publications are the coin of the realm, right? And quite literally, this is how you make your job and you secure a future. So for me, there were many times receiving pushback on this. It was a question of like, what am I doing? Um, And I don't pretend to be fighting the good fight for the truth. Don't get me wrong. But like, where is that line where we write something that we believe in but it's it's not light. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and so fun when I found this venue to publish it, I was very excited. Um, and they were great. Um, they were super supportive and and it, it was it was nice because I really I yeah, I, I mean, everyone, Thomas Merton hates his own early, he hated his early writings. But I, I read it now and I'm like, oh God, it's terrible. (laughs) Um, But I think that's also part of learning. I mean, I, I, when in my, when I teach my classes, you'll often hear me have, when students give presentations, you'll hear me say, keep going, I, I respect public struggle and I think that we're often very concerned with what looks like success Um, whereas I think failure is really how we move forward because we learn from mistakes and when we're only successful we're not learning in, in a way that we can. Which is actually why I ended up writing that 
that piece in the campus. I don't know if you've yeah. read it. Mm-hmm. Right about my struggles with dyslexia. Um, and I wrote it because I think as much as it's hard for me to work with dyslexia, it's also... Um, it turned me into a viciously hard worker because it was like, I'm going to have to study three hours more than my peers. I'm going to have to double this. And it was through that sort of difficulty that I got better and stronger. So I guess that was what got me to be wanting to publish, wanted me, that, that's why I persisted in wanting to publish this and put that sort of moment in there was because it was like, this is really different than what I know. It's really different than the literature I cut my teeth on. And so, um, and I think, if I'll, say, I'll just say this in, in a, as a plug for languages, I think that a lot of research is also done not in language. And it is done with data that is extracted. And the ability to sit in a place and understand uncomfortable subtleties around us because we can understand the language to me, strikes me as a baseline form of respect and duty to the places we study. This doesn't mean that I'm, I do not want to carte blanche condemn or say like, this is the only way to do research. Um, I mean, there are, is an incredible amount of effective and powerful and valuable research that is done not in language and is survey-based and all of these things. Um, and I was trained by a number of these people as a, as a student um, in my graduate work. And I, I have nothing but the deepest respect for these, for these researchers. Uh, at the, and, not but, and I do though think that sitting in a place and, and getting to feel that uncomfortable sense of I feel at home here, but it is not my home. I think that's important to research and I and specifically there was a piece written before this that mentioned hunting and I cite it and the person who did the work mentions hunting and the way that the person mentions hunting is semi-accurate but it also really misses so much about what hunting is in the area. And it is indicative of not knowing the language. And I find that 
problematic. And so that moment that was kind of, for me, like transformative as a researcher to be like, oh, wow, what is going on here? And so my plug for plug, I guess, for languages here is that they can sensitize us to so very much. And when we don't have these sort of language abilities around us, we are forced back onto data that is extracted. And that's, I don't want to like condemn that, but I think we need to know the limits of what we think of as data and what we value as data. And it's problematic these days. And this is, is, has been a continual debate in geography in my field forever. I mean, we had a thing called the quantitative revolution, mm -hmm. right? And then there was pushback against it. And these debates are endless. Um, so this is not me saying quantification is bad and only qualitative research is good. And nor do I want to step back and be like, well, maybe we can have both. Like, this, this is also one of these sort of silly postures of the pretense of, well, I do mixed methods. Um, I think it, it comes down to what are the questions that we're asking and what is our academic, political, existential, and dare I say, human agenda in that project? And is it meant to be extractive and exploitative? And that's what we have to ask ourselves. Yeah, definitely. So I want to revisit an idea that you had in kind of previously in that answer, which is about how you were pushing back a little bit on prevailing literature. Yeah. This idea of um, sort of statualization of this idea, sort of this like fortress conservation idea. Yeah. Um, and then you find that in Lebanon, this isn't exactly the case with hunting because um, there's a structural division between this legislative and enforcement duties. There's this lack of institutional support for police who often had to contend with sort of complex social dynamics yes. and um, politically connected hunters, for example. Um, are these things that aren't a factor in other places? Are these things that are unique to Lebanon? Or um, is there anything like particularly unique about the fact that there isn't necessarily fortress conservation in this region? So, thank you. This is a great question. Because I think, having said that the tenants of Fortress conservation have been sort of robustly and redundantly found. Um, I, I also think that um, a lot of it is, uh, it's research that is not necessarily done in language. Mm -hmm. And so I think in a way, um, What I hope this article to be is a chance for other people to start noticing other 
events and phenomena and data and, and attitudes around them so that when they go to these places that have you know, a, a sort of clear conservation, uh, fortress conservation trappings, that they also notice other things that are not that. And my, so my goal is not to deconstruct and say fortress conservation is wrong or the securitization of protected areas isn't happening or to say no to any of it. It's more so that my hope is that this piece says, oh, wait, but let's, let's also think of it like this. How, how can we also think about it? And the, in many ways, academic thinking is sort of anemic to contradiction. It's binary. Right? It's like, it's a fortress. So, and we're using uh, Marxist critical critique, structuralist critique, we're, we're, we're critiquing global capitalism and its role in this. And these are very watertight and very well-backed up arguments. At the same time, I think we need a space for not but, rather a space for and. This is true and this is true. Our capacity for paradoxical thinking in the academy is gone, almost. We don't want to say this is true and this is true. And, and so my hope here is to sort of be like, yeah, sure, you have these terror, you have violence used against people who were able to access resources and are now trying to do that. And to never deny that, but also to say, okay, so what is the cohesion, where also, how is this then negotiated in less of a purely sort of singularly coherent interpretation. And this is not to ignore questions of, perhaps, of, of class, state power, um, legal efficacy, support for police, lack of support for police. Do we even need police? Should we have police? Should we have police that, regu that address the environment alone? Should we not? Right? I don't, I, and in the article, I, I don't answer those questions. Um, it's, 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 it's more of an attempt to say, let's, um, let's try to think of this more subtly and less predictably. Does that... Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Okay. Thank you. And specifically to the question of state is kind of where I heard you going. Does that answer that? It does, yeah. Okay. And that it's not necessarily that these particular factors are unique to Lebanon or... Oh, thank you. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that it's not unique to Lebanon, right? And, and, and when we talk... This is something I, I would not want to say is like... In, in sort of paradoxical thinking, all things are particular. 
yet nothing is unique. <laughs> Does yeah. that make sense? That makes a ton of sense. <laughs> right? Yes. Like, mm-hmm. like, I'm never going to say, oh, look, the Middle East is different than everywhere else. No, obviously not, yeah. right? Humans are humans are humans. Mm-hmm. Um, there are particularities here, but it is, it is definitely also not and the particular it is not unique to the Middle East. And and this has this is definitely other places. And so the hope is that this gets used as an opportunity for other people like, wait, yeah, I see fortress conservation in this way is differently. And there are other people who've sort of pushed back against the fortress fortress conservation. I'm not like the first one to do this. This is not, you know, some sort of seminal work on my part, but I'm trying to open up more avenues to do it. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the one thing that interested both Andrew and I was the idea of these complex social networks. I know that Andrew has a question that's pretty focused on that. Yes, absolutely. Um, If you could allow me just to read a short section from your work. Yes. Um, during interviews, this social network was described in the Arabic word mahsubiya. And I, I do read this quote because I think it's very pertinent to what you were talking about, the necessity of performing work in language and so that it's not so extractive. Yeah. Um, so back to the quote. <laughs> mahsubiya, which in context can simply translate to brackets social accountability. The triliteral root of this word hasin ba stands in the semantic field containing the words for accounting, account, accounting, accountable, accountant, etc. And for the check at a restaurant. No, I wrote that. The... I forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the root and semantic field provides a sharper sense of how these networks social role as a system of accounts built on favors, social indebtedness and local positions of power could be used against an officer. Yeah. So my question is, due to recent governmental failures in all sectors and Lebanon's faltering economy and high inflation, have people used this type of social accountability or these sorts of social networks to procure food from the reserve um, as Lebanon joins the UN list of countries at risk of catastrophic famine? I'm so glad you mentioned that last line. So, my research has shifted. Um, summer before last, I traveled to uh, Lebanon, and I, and I, uh, Kenny Fernandez, who is currently a graduate student at Virginia, in Virginia, um, went with me, and we. We actually did food research, um, and that informs my upcoming class next spring, uh, food security in Lebanon. Um, and so, so sort of to your question, Mahsubiya, this sort of social indebtedness, right, is definitely also not particular to Lebanon, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these sort of social networks of favors and accountability are everywhere. Um, in terms of food procurement, um, as Lebanon 
careens towards um, kind of disaster, and hopefully this can be averted. Um, I mean, I think these social networks will decidedly play a role in the food in food distribution. Um, One thing that's right, if there's one thing that's just so people share food i think I think even when i as Americans, I find that that there's something. One reason I think it's really good to study abroad is that we discover just different ways of being in the world. Um, and actually, in the, I'm taking that, that, that's pretty much a direct quote from a colleague um, in Russian, Tim Portis. Um, and and we've he and I have talked about this as as colleagues and friends. Um, and he's like, this is you know, studying abroad, being abroad is important. And now maybe a misclaim, but as I remember how he puts it, is we we see different ways of we understand that this isn't the only way. And one thing that's always struck me about wherever I go is is. The way people share food, that like food is just, you need food, okay. Hey, come on over for dinner. Um, and that while there is, there are sort of social networks of accountability, um, food is one of those things that, yes, while there are people who study hospitality as part of social networks and creating kind of favor networks at the same time food is very freely given um and not as deeply commodified in the way it's 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 understood like you give people food um it's ridiculous it is offensive and nothing but condemnable the amount of food insecurity we have in this country. Um, and the completely insane distribution of wealth that we have, or lack of distribution of wealth. Um, and so when I think about these sort of social networks and think about upcoming food insecurity, something that's very thought about in these sort of contexts is resiliency. How, if there's a shock, can a country deal with this shock? And Lebanon has gone through enough shocks that it doesn't matter if you have the excellent social networks or whatever, right, if there is enough difficulty in Lebanon that I really think that 
you can smash these networks. You can, what I mean is like these networks, right? The shocks, currency devaluation, international banks, right? Setting up conditionality for lending or for bailout, saying this is you're corrupt, so we're not going to do this, we're not going to help you with this until you meet our conditionality. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of the same IMF multilateral conditionality that we've had forever, just under new, a new guise. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. New acronyms with greater outcomes and supposed autonomy and <laughs> measurables. Yeah. It's like, no, we're not going to capitalize your banks because we've decided that you are corrupt and we don't know where it's all going, so we're just going to let everything go to hell. I mean, really, that's what's happening in Lebanon. Yeah. Like, just on the floor. Um, and so, the que- so my research has, has, in this sort of hope of thinking about contributing something to the world, has moved towards food. Mm-hmm. Personally, um, I mean, I, I always tried to steer away from food studies. I'll just throw that out there. Like, and it's nice we have a food studies program here that, um, through which I can offer this program. And I've also really enjoyed my ability to work with environmental studies where I've been able to offer my programs. And these other programs, have been, I've, I'm happy to contribute. Um, and this is what I think is the beauty of the academy is we, we meet people where we can do these different things. Um, Personally, I've always steered away from food studies because um, <laughs> because it was so ubiquitous in some ways, right? It, when I was an undergrad in Colorado in the late, in the mid-90s, I'm older than I look. <laughs> wait, wait, I'm sorry. I was not going to mention anything, Professor, I swear. <laughs> wait, actually, yes. No, maybe I'm younger than I look. Anyways. <laughs> We're just on radio, right? Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> so, um, I took a really great class many, many years ago, but with an interesting and lovely professor who has since passed um, by the name of David, Dave Harmon. And he taught a course called um, World Hunger. And it was just about hunger. And we looked at the myths surrounding hunger. We used an older text called uh, World uh, Hunger, Seven Myths. I'm drawing a blank right now. Um, And he, he had this great that we worked in Nicaragua. He created a, a, an NGO I traveled to Nicaragua twice in the 90s and they did really neat work in a teeny, teeny little village on the northern part of of Nicaragua, right on the border in Honduras. The whole area had been smashed by the Contras um, and, and fighting. And so, and it was very food insecure. And... And so this, the work they did was, so I ended up studying food insecurity and food for many years. Um, 
and then in graduate school in South Carolina, my um, my advisor worked entirely on um, development, um, and he does a lot on food, um, and uh, obviously he everything I say in this is my responsibility to say this. So when I mention my colleague, Professor Tim Portis, or I mention my advisor, Ed Carr, what I say in this is my responsibility, but um, these are people who have been in my life. Um, and working under Ed as a student, I read it, we worked a great deal on development and food and food security and resiliency and these sorts of things. Um, so I think that um, when we think about things like mahsubiya, the one thing that I loved about Ed Carr, Professor Carr's work is that, um, and I have to, I still have to call him Professor Carr because he's, <laughs> he's Professor Carr to me, but yeah. um, he, he looks at... Um, he looks at gender and food and crops and crop selection around food and land use and local village uh, land use along gender lines. And it's, he's these really neat and super cogent sort of research that gets at perhaps making a contribution to the world, whatever mm. that is, but to thinking about, okay, food security, making the world perhaps a better place. Um, and of course he, you know, it's, it's sort of aware of criticisms of positivism and the idea that, oh, can we go out and fix the world? He's deeply aware of sort of post-colonial and post-development critiques. Um, but he's, but his work is sort of, Working under him was really gave me a lot of training, um, but I sort of shied away from food because it it was very it was done a lot and there were a lot of people on it, and I was always sort of interested in the obscure, like wow a bunch of birdshot landed <laughs> on me, um, <laughs> what just happened, mm -hmm. um, and. But I, for a number of reasons, um, have happily ended up doing food research. It's not like I, I have a problem with it, don't get me wrong, but it was not, um, it was not sort of my original goal. But it was a very natural transition. Um, even in Lebanon, I ended up uh, working with the reserve. They wanted, they wanted to... Uh, they were like, all right, like anything, there's a, there's like cooperation between the entity you're researching and the researcher. And so they're like, we need you to write this proposal for the, for the EU funding of something. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll do it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, and that's fine. It's mutual give and take. Um, and, but it, it was fun. It was, they didn't get it. I felt bad, but I was like, oh, we got rejected. Um, but um, 
So I've sort of been working on food in the area for a very long time. And I think these questions of Mahsubiyya and these questions of state power that you bring up um, remain absolutely salient. Um, And so this is a long way of saying, yes, I think they'll play a role, but also I don't have the data on the ground yet. I haven't been the data on the ground. I haven't been there yet to see what's, I haven't been there in a while after COVID, after COVID. Right. Um, right. and so I'm, I'm, I'm planning on going this summer, um, and seeing what's what's happening. But yeah. as far as I can tell, it is a, it's a mess. Yeah. I, for my, I know we're running out of time just a little bit. Um, but you were mentioning earlier about the conditionality, and and of. Like, well, you're corrupt, and we don't know who the who the money is going to precisely, et cetera. And I think that is super interesting. And I think a non-state actor is big agribusiness. I mean, yeah. you mentioned I mean, you mentioned that earlier in our conversation. To what degree does it does big agriculture control food production in Lebanon? And then also, I think, again, to go back to conditionality, regarding Saudi Arabia's recent decision to indefinitely ban agricultural imports from Lebanon, what redress do organizations like unions and farmers associations have? Do unions and farmers associations have any? Excellent. I love this question. Um, So, I mean, agribusiness, right, is... is a global phenomenon. I mean, the fact that the Suez Canal being closed down for all of three days, somehow leading to, you know, this catastrophic doom of everything because somehow we couldn't get plastic products quickly enough <laughs> um, is, a, is a problem, right? It's right. Like, like if, if the circulation of goods and capital and all of these things are the only way and, and this, the, the absolutely quick circulation of them is the only way somehow we can sustain ourselves anymore we have a problem um, and don't get me wrong I get in my car or I get on my motorcycle <laughs> and I come to campus and I use gasoline to do so and I get up in the morning and I eat food that has been brought to me through this system, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm not saying that there's an instant, and I'm not even saying I have the alternative and I know better and it's all bad and it's very easy to criticize things without trying to come up with something viable as, a, as a, an alternative. But I am happy to criticize large agribusiness and say, right, if you have grain and all of these things that can only then be moved through the Suez Canal and then then suddenly everything falls apart, Houston, we have a problem, (laughs) a very big problem. We We have shoved ourselves in space and made ourselves entirely dependent on this circulation of these like massive capital and goods and somehow we can no longer derive 
life or livelihood from the world but through this. This is a dependency that seems dangerous, much like the dependency of throwing yourself in space and being like, there's no oxygen out there and we're having a technical problem. Right. Right? Like, okay, why, why are we doing this? This seems like a problem. I actually never saw that movie, but I just <laughs> like the quote. <laughs> um, yeah. I feel but, like, Oh, I'm sorry, go. No, thank you. Um, I feel like the Suez Canal, at least in some of my social groups, people are very worried about it. In other social groups, people are like, why do we care about it? Yeah. Which I think is an interesting dynamic yeah. because... Wow. And I'm not saying Ooh. that I know better than any of my other friends, but mm-hmm. I feel like as like an undergraduate student in international political economy, I understand yes. sort of the implication of these things, perhaps just a tiny nice. little bit more than some other people do. Mm-hmm. I think that for me, that really showed how fragile the entire world system is, that we think we're kind of invincible and that globalization is the answer and has kind of made the world more, has made the world stronger, but in fact, it's something as simple as a boat being turned to a 90 degree angle and the whole world system collapses. <laughs> yeah. It yes. admittedly makes me a little nervous about globalization in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. fine. <laughs> and to answer the second part of your question, was it also about... Um, it was so. It so, was about uh, sorry, I had. Uh, oh, it was actually that's a lot of ongoing research that I'm hoping to keep working on. So those are awesome questions, um, and I, I, I deeply welcome them. They're also the ongoing research, and if I put them out, them. if I put them out in a in a published podcast, um, <laughs> then they're out there. Um, so I'm gonna. Say thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, then I can just um, move on to the kind of second half of that question. Sure. So you talk, I mean, your whole part of your article is about territorialization and yes. militarization. So on that front, to what degree has the state in Lebanon territorialized or militarized agricultural lands mm-hmm. in the region to control drug smuggling, quote unquote. And you know, I mentioned that in my previous question was Saudi Arabia's recent decision to ban imports because of uh, Captagon being found in a massive shipment of pomegranates coming into the country. Um, and do you think that, that your research on, on hunting can also be applied to agriculture in this way? Is the Lebanese government productive or effective enough to make any impact at all um, on this? And do our agricultural subsidies going to help? I mean, there's impending economic, etc. You know? Thank you. I love the question. Um, so I think um, The problem of, of state is that we think that it's real. The state isn't real. There's no real thing called the state. Yet there is also, uh, there are also a number of institutions, a coherence of institutions that are deeply networked, have often somewhat conflicting within them, but a sort of Tra- coherent trajectory for the maintenance of power and a monopoly on violence. 
So in that, we have sort of what we like to think of as the state. Um, and thinking of, of, the, of the Lebanese state, uh, there have been a number of people who have written their... Uh, and focused on a, a common Lebanese expression that is, when a dawle, when a dawle, when he a dawle, where's the state? Where's the state? And it's a, it's a sarcastic expression, like, because everyone knows there's no state that's going to come and be like, hey, you probably shouldn't pave that road right down the middle of that ravine because uh, that's going to lead to a lot of erosion. There, mm-hmm. There's really no regulation. Right. And so I think that to sort of further answer your question, Lucia, about um, the state is I think, and, and my article, I think that this applies also to other, way, other places because the Lebanese state's incapacity is not exceptional to Lebanon. And there are many other places in the world where the state is not necessarily able to make its agenda effective on the ground. And probably, definitely also in places where other researchers are doing work on conservation. And so when we think about Lebanon as perhaps having particulars but not being unique, which is Mm -hmm. what we came up with earlier, sort of on the fly, right? I think that is not uniqueness is in its state's inability to make certain agendas realizable through these institutions, right? The thing that we call the state. And so I think that that definitely also applies to other parts of the world. And that's kind of what I'm hinting at in that article. So then to get back to what you're asking about food, the state with food in Lebanon is, um, the state is, it, it is really sort of Wayne Adone, right? Mm-hmm. The state has been deeply concerned with banking and controlling banking and regulating banking for a long time. Um, food system has always been very laissez like just, not just laissez I mean, it's just like, market, the market will rule. Completely unregulated. Yeah. And now, right, as things are falling apart, food subsidies are also then being very criticized by lender countries mm. as either market distortions or going to corruption or we're not going to fund these anymore or all sorts of things like this. Um, the problem is on the end of that, they're mouths of children. And I don't want to sound morally pedantic, but it's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we decide that these subsidies and we're going to have this conditionality and we're not going to have this support for food subsidies in a country, we take food out of people's mouths. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatever that we is in that sentence, I'm not sure. But that is what happens. And the we there really is multilateral institutions uh, that are happy to 
lend billions of dollars with interest on it. Which, right, when we really think about this, we don't like to talk about the fact that most religions ban usury. Mm -hmm. We don't want to talk about that. Because <laughs> it's an extraction of wealth. Mm -hmm. It's an extraction of value, whatever that may be. And so, in this way, the state in Lebanon is hands-off. Mm -hmm. And it is really the multilateral institutions that get to set up conditionality and rules. It's always done under the guise of, we, give, we are giving advice. Right? You can look at IMF website and they say, when there was a financial crisis before the explosion in Beirut. We have a lot of advice. Advice. Well, if you're holding that much money over the country, you're not giving advice. <laughs> there are requests, yeah. demands, statements. Yeah. Under the guise of advice. Precisely. Right? And so for me as a food researcher, though, I go back to the critique of these multilateral institutions is almost redundant. It's been done. We know this. They are deeply problematic mm -hmm. and intervening really deeply into people's, into the structuring of people's lives. And so I find myself saying, as a food researcher, Kenny and I, right, the, the, our, our graduate, we interviewed farmers directly and talked about what do you farm, why do you farm this, how do you farm? And I, and I think, and we looked at all sorts of things. Uh, I mean, it was awesome, fun research. Mm -hmm. um, and to get to do it with a Middlebury grab was really great, actually. Um, And I think that while I'm obviously taking a very critical stance about these multilateral institutions, I don't want to say everyone who works in them is evil or something, right? Or they are inherently evil or X or Y or Z. But what's, what they're doing in Lebanon is really a problem. And what they did in Nicaragua was beyond what I, what I saw them do in Nicaragua was Terrible, mm -hmm. condemnable. Um, in fact, in Nicaragua, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just a long story. Right? Um, <laughs> it was a mess. Um, and in fact, we, we, we had one of our representatives go to the bank and be like, your policies have resulted in this for us as a small NGO working with in this small village. Mm -hmm. They were told, well, yeah, you, basically they were told, you have to break some eggs if you want to make an omelet, right? But That's absurd. And I think this is the problem with usury. And don't, like, sure, I'm mentioning Francis and I'm mentioning religious figures, but I'm also thinking of this in universal terms and even secular terms, like what is the wisdom in this that says, why is usury a problem? Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Right? And what, whatever my personal confession may be, I have to look back and say, what is, what is, why have these religions banned this for so long? And we don't talk about that anymore. And for our representative, for who we were working with, to, be, to go into the bank and say, look, this is the result. You're, you're, you're creating food insecurity. To then be told, well, right, you have to break some eggs to make an omelet. Well, if that egg happens to be the mouths of children, mm-hmm. there's, this isn't a laughing matter. And I don't want to... I don't want to... I don't want to take a virtuous pose, and I don't want to talk down, and I don't want to be pretentious. But I do want to say, damn, this is bad. Food insecurity is unacceptable in a world that physically produces enough food to feed everybody already. Mm -hmm. It's just not acceptable. There's not even a question in my mind. And And I think that it's a commitment to... Asking ourselves, are these institutions really, as much as we come up with, oh, we have these outcomes, we have measurable outcomes, things are better, we don't use GDP anymore, we use also this, and we use this, so we've done better. But are we really doing better with Lebanon careening towards, you know, the food, such rampant food insecurity? No, we're not. We're not. This, sh- this shouldn't even be a question. Food security shouldn't even be a question. Mm-hmm. And so in the way that the state has been sort of forced to be, not forced, whatever, I mean, we can talk about Lebanese history, but in the way that, whatever, the global agribusiness, maintain such on-the-ground efficacy in Lebanon and commitments to urbanization and industrialization as a way to somehow create the kind of classic spin-up model of an economy that then creates food security through a kind of shuttered-down state role has left us here where the state can't do anything, can't territorialize anything, and is then dependent upon external donors to make sure it has food subsidies so kids can eat, and then forcing itself to achieve all kinds of conditionality at the behest of these these external institutions saying, yeah, we'll do this, we'd like to also be able to feed our our people. Mm -hmm. This is problematic. 
And so when we think about things like sovereignty, this is not sovereignty, right? We love the state and we love sovereignty, but we're also then happy to highly collateralize quote-unquote developing nations, which is the best way to undermine anything. Once it's collateralized, what are you going to do? You're going to give advice, which I say sarcastically, right? Yes. Right. It's mm-hmm. not advice. It's policy behind a mask, like the one I'm wearing, <laughs> <laughs> saying here's what should happen. Mm-hmm. And this is real. I'm being very critical of these institutions, but I think having known people in them, I don't think those who work in them are malicious people. But I think there's a blinding commitment to an understanding of the world that has that obfuscates and precludes our ability to simply say, you know, a lot of this money might go and be, you know, spent in ways we don't like. But these kids aren't going to die. So let's make sure we get these food subsidies out and try to follow them the best we can and make sure there's bread and butter for people. Mm-hmm. And that's really... Because there's, there's enough of it. There's enough money and there's enough food out there. So to me, it's, it's kind of just a basic question of... It goes back to what your original question was. What's your relationship to this place? My relationship would hopefully be... Kids shouldn't fucking starve. Period. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today, Professor Greeley. This has been really enriching and <laughs> I feel like we covered a lot yeah. of ground. And I feel like these are conversations that we can continue having for hours and days and months and years on end. And I'm looking forward to continuing these conversations with you as well. Thank you. Thank you, yes, right. I mean, in some ways, I, I talked a lot, and it's at the end of the semester and a hard semester, and it, and uh, I'm tired, so perhaps I, I'm quite effusive and willing to talk. So you, <laughs> you got me at a great moment. Yes. Um, yes. And so uh, in other times, maybe I would have been more guarded, but I I stand by what I... I, I I stand by my commitment to public struggle. And if I've said something that is wrong, and then I'm also willing to learn from that. And that I don't pretend that everything I say is right or a success because we are all successful all the time. These need to be open dialogues where we get to be wrong. And I'm... As much as I am convinced of my own words, I'm also wanting to continue these sorts of dialogues. And it's important. Because why else are we here? Exactly. Great. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you.